Appreciate your coming out tonight. Good evening. And uh, let me just start by uh, saying uh, Pastor Vibona is uh, looking a little better today. He's got a little more color, but he's very weak. Um, his son, David, is planning to fly in from California tomorrow, so we're thankful for that. And uh, um, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how long our brother has to live, but um, he's still with us. And uh, good spirits, and it's a joy to meet with the family, and uh, they're having precious times together. Tonight, I have an introduction that I hope is going to work. Um, uh, I want to talk about righteousness and, and holiness. Uh, I, I want this to be extremely practical as we move on. I want to talk about homosexuality and all the issues of our culture and so on. That's coming a little down the road because I, I want to establish a foundation and I've begun by saying it seems that everyone and no one is concerned about holiness. I say that because it's talked about a lot, but usually in a, a way in which one person is pointing their finger at another person and are not meeting the expectations that they think that the other person should meet. And so I want to talk about, about holiness in its broad sense. So what does it mean to be holy? Uh, we sang a song that talked about that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and we know that there's a positional holiness that we have in him, that our sins are forgiven. And as a result of our personal relationship to Jesus Christ, our, we stand absolved in his sight of all sin. We, in fact, are sinless and fully accepted and will be in his presence. I think we all understand and know that. I'm concerned in this subject about the subjective aspect of holiness. That is, what does holiness look like? What has God called us to do? What behaviors, if you will, should be evidenced by a child of God? And does it even matter? You know, there are some people that because you have positional righteousness, that's, that's all that matters anyway, and so it becomes a mute point. Or people become frustrated and say, well, we can't live holy lives anyway. Uh, no one is sinless, therefore why try, and let's just pack up the bags and give up. And then there are others who are real crusaders. So what is a Christian to do? That would be an interesting response that we would get if we would ask, what should a Christian do? What is at the heart of our Christian responsibility? Some people might respond, uh, read our Bible. Somebody else might respond, pray. Somebody else might say, pray collectively, pray in a group. Someone else might say, supply clean water to a village that doesn't have it. Someone else may say, visit an orphan or a widow. Someone else might say, try to alleviate the oppressed. Okay, there would be a lot of different responses. And I want to talk about why those different responses. 
And so tonight is just kind of an introduction. It's kind of a, a uh, trip down church history. And I begin with, there have been various movements concerning holiness that characterize the larger church down through the ages. At various times and places, the call to holiness was a limited call. And I submit to you that it has almost been a limited call. And what I mean by that is there are a few things that are picked out of what the scripture says about being holy, and that's what a particular group has emphasized. That's what a particular sect, S-E-C-T, a particular religious organization or domination has grabbed hold of a few things as opposed to the whole counsel of God. The result has been a swinging pendulum from one extreme to another. It's like the tendency to oversteer and overcorrect when a car is careening out of control. You know, when, when you're driving down the road and, and something happens, I, I remember <clears throat> I had an incident when I was 16 years old. I was driving my sports car, and I was driving way too fast. And right as I went over the breast of a hill, I had a real little car. It was a convertible. You couldn't see it. And I went over the breast of a hill, as I say, going way too fast, and a car pulled out right in front of me. Right smack, right there, because they didn't see me. And I had just a split second to decide what I was going to do. And uh, I knew if I broadsided that car, I was going to probably kill myself and whoever was in that car. So I swerved to miss that vehicle. And I, and I was able to do it. The car handled very well, and I went all the way over here. And now I'm traveling at a very high speed of rate this way. And so I jerked the wheel back, and I'm trying to slow. Now I'm going at a high rate of speed this way. And then I'm back to this way. And I went back and forth across the entire road five times and eventually went perpendicular into a bank and then up the bank and there was a board fence there and hit the board fence and it turned my car this way and the top of the board fence there was a barbed wire and that just sprung and came right down next to me and I went through four fence posts and hit a tree. I don't know why I told you all that except that I was careening out of control. And I was trying to get back to the center. I wanted to get back straight. And it was very hard because I was going this direction and I jerked and I was going this direction. I was going that direction. I was going that direction. And I'm telling you, that's what I think has happened down through the church ages when it comes to holiness. There's always been a difficulty of steering down the middle. And people have overreacted and oversteered and emphasized certain elements at the detriment of, ultimately, all of what the Word of God has to say. And so my goal is that we try to drive down the center of the highway and not just overreact to the pendulum swing. All right. So, for example, the emphasis in the medieval period was monasticism. In order to live holy lives, people sought to live cloistered lives, literally shut up from the world. The body or flesh was viewed as sinful and must be subdued. Pleasures were avoided at all costs. And so you wouldn't even sleep on a bed. You wouldn't have a pillow. You'd have a stone as a pillow because that's going to help you overcome 
sin and temptation in your life. In addition, harsh treatment and bodily pain was used to try to deliver one from the lust of the flesh. So flagellants were used. People would beat themselves, whip themselves, trying to whip disobedience out of their lives. Celibacy was celebrated as the ideal, of course, and and, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, priests did not marry. Uh, it It was the ideal, which... You know, when you stop and, and, you, and you say to yourself, now how did that happen? You know, the scripture says an elder should be the husband of one wife. Where did we move? How, how did we get to celibacy? My, my point is not to say how we got there. My point is to say we got there. Okay? And that was accepted as the norm. That was accepted as if you were really going to be devoted, if you were really going to be consecrated, if you were going to be holy, you would be above the flesh. You'd be above those Sinful desires, so that even within the confines of marriage, it almost became a sinful desire to have a a sexual relationship with someone. Best to abstain totally. And so celibacy was the ideal. Communal life was also important. You didn't just do this by yourself. You lived in a community. Uh, You lived in a convent. You lived in a monastery. You had brothers there, or if you were uh, a woman, you, you lived with a group of nuns, and you had the opportunity to uh, develop this communal life. It was through the church that one came into a relationship with God, through the sacraments of baptism and communion. All right, So it was understood that you were born again as a result of being baptized. And of course, that tradition continues down to, to this very day. The Catholic Church still teaches that a, the entrance into the kingdom of God, the way in which a person is born again, is a result of baptism. <clears throat> the Reformation was a church that couldn't purchase salvation. Uh, the 95 Theses, of course, the 95 Theses, there were 95 faults, if you will, that Luther found with the church at that time, and certainly the motivating factor, the, the primary one, was when Tetzel came through, and uh, a little ditty, uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, the, the soul from purgatory springs, uh, Martin Luther said, no, 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 that can't happen. But, but not only did it bring theological changes, but Martin Luther and the nuns fled monasteries, and they got into the world. And Martin Luther married... Katharina von Bora, and together they had five children. So he left the monastery, changed his doctrine, but also his social life changed. Also his view of marriage changed. His view of what it meant to be righteous and holy changed. What one time he would have fought against, now he is embracing. Embracing. So the Reformation brought religious transformation of both doctrine and social life. Then there is the influence of socialism, uh, excuse me, scholasticism. After the Reformation, the church became very concerned with doctrinal precision. The scriptures were being placed in the hands of the ordinary man and woman. Okay? The, the Great Reformation moved the church from simply holding to 
tradition plus the scripture, now to really emphasizing the scriptures themselves, apart from tradition. Uh, at this period of time is when the great movements began to uh, translate the scriptures uh, into German, into the languages, not just Latin, so that everyone could read the Bible. If you are uh, in a more liturgical church service, there is one very, very important element still in very liturgical churches, and you may have seen it, and many of our Bible fellowship churches for years had what was in the front would be considered, they would call it an altar, although no sacrifice was made on it, but they would, they would refer to it as an altar, and, and usually on top of that was what? A Bible, okay? And what was most significant about that Bible was that it was opened, it was never closed, and it was opened in the face or faced, facing the congregation. It was never turned so that it was towards the pulpit. It was turned so it was towards the congregation. It was a symbol of saying the Bible is open to you. You can read the Bible for yourself. You don't have to have the clergy telling you what the scripture said. But there was concern for preciseness of doctrine. So children were taught or catechized. And when you hear catechism, that, simply, that word just simply means to teach. So there was the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. The Westminster Catechism and Shorter Catechism, 1646 to 1647. The Baptist Catechism, written in 16. 77 was patterned after the Heidelberg and Westminster catechisms to teach Reformed doctrine from a Baptist perspective. So the main difference in the Baptist <clears throat> uh, catechism has to do with baptism. However, in many circles, scholasticism deteriorated into mere formalism so that holiness became simply holding to sound doctrine. What was it to be righteous or holy? Answer, it meant you believed the right things. And if you believed the right things, you were holy. You were viewed as a model Christian, especially if you could defend what you believed, if you could articulate what you believed. That was the ultimate goal. That was not true everywhere, to be sure. But it was the predominant view, especially in Germany. And John Piper added commentary to the catechism during his early years at Bethlehem in hopes of building a stable and firm generation who hopes in God. He explains the purpose is to lay an ordered foundation from which the church may keep growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I I throw that in there because, obviously, John Piper is worried about the heart and and, and not just the mind. And to say these influences continue down through the ages. You know, that's not our tradition. That's not our here. We don't catechize children. There are a lot of churches that still do catechize children. And I'm not against catechisms. That's the whole point. 
The influence of pietism. Pietism kind of coexisted with scholasticism in terms of a period of, of time, but they were different in place. Okay? In Germany, it was the pietism was, excuse me, in Germany, the scholasticism was, was strong. In Sweden and, and other places, it was more pietistic. Although there were, there, were, there were groups that responded, and certainly Menno Simons was one that responded, and so we have pietism. And I, I chose this definition from Webster's Dictionary because I, I thought it was very precise and yet very accurate. The principles or practices of one who seeks to substitute the devotional for the intellectual ideal in Christian experience. Scholasticism said the ideal was knowing and defending the truth. Pietist said the ideal was experiencing the truth. Taking the truth and making it your own. Internalizing this truth. So that it's not just affecting the mind, but it's affecting the heart. And primarily the heart. So the stress was on the individual and the individual's relationship to God. So it was the personal relationship to God. The emphasis was upon receiving Christ as one's personal Savior. The importance of having a personal walk with Christ and the importance of having communion with God through personal devotions. It is about the individual and their relationship to God. That's primarily what holiness is. In your own relationship to God, in your beliefs, in your experience. Each person was to interpret the scriptures for his or herself. Pietism stressed the individual's relationship to God as opposed to the larger community or group. One could have a personal relationship with God apart from the church. Now, you see, now that is true. Okay, and it was the response. During the Reformation period even, the idea was that you came to know God through the church, primarily through baptism and communion, And that emphasis continued on, even after the 95 Theses, okay? It came in different uh, degrees. No longer was it being taught that you were truly saved simply as a result of being baptized as an infant. But the idea was that that was going to be the instrument, that was going to be the, the means of grace. That's what sacrament means, means of grace. That's what God was going to use, to bring a person into a right relationship with God. If you were going to be right with God, you had to be right with the church, was the understanding. Pietism changed all that and understood that it wasn't the church that made you right with God. It was your own personal faith in Jesus Christ that made you right with God. It wasn't the fact that you were baptized that made you right with God. In fact, in the pietist movement, you wouldn't be baptized until you had faith in God, because it didn't bestow it, it was a testimony to it. And I would just add that the word sacrament 
was no longer used. It wasn't seen as a means of grace, but it was replaced with the word ordinance as a command of God. So each person was to interpret the scriptures for his or herself. Pietism stressed the individual's relationship to God. One could have a personal relationship with God apart from the church. And now this statement, one could have a personal relationship with God without the church. Okay? And, and so, in the pietistic movement, the, the church almost becomes irrelevant. It's about, about you and, and your walk with God. And so you would hear people even ask, you know, why, why do you need to go to church? Can't you be a good Christian and, and not go to church? Where does that come from? How could someone think that? Well, the answer is it, it's the pietistic influence. Pietism, from the word piety, was a movement within Lutheranism that began in the late 17th century. Some of its theological tenets influenced Protestantism and Anabaptist generally. Uh, Anabaptist simply means baptized again. That means that no longer holding to infant baptism, and if that's what you were, you were baptized as an infant, then you had to be baptized again. Inspiring the Anglican priest, John Wesley, to begin the Methodist movement, and Alexander Mack to begin the Brethren movement. The Piestist movement combined the Lutheranism of the time with reformed emphasis on individual piety and living a vigorous Christian life. Though Pietism shares an emphasis on personal behavior with the Puritan movement and the two are often confused, there are important differences, particularly in the content of the whole religion and government. That's from the Wikipedia. Um, I believe that it would be better stated is that the most important differences were on the role of religion in society as a whole. I'll say more of that when I get to under Puritanism. But I want you to understand that the Brethren and Mennonite churches were highly influenced by pietism, as mentioned there in that Wikipedia article. That's our, that's our, our heritage, okay? That's where we come. We're Anabaptists. We baptize again. And so this pietist movement greatly influenced who and what we were. Within pietism, the emphasis is on lay leaders, there was a de-emphasis on intellectual pursuits and a negative response to highly trained clergy. Seminaries were cemeteries. Okay, That, that was a, a common idea. You don't want to go to seminary because then you're just going to become spiritually dead. You're gonna, that's a killer if you go to seminary. Then all vital vibrant faith is going to be lost. You're just going to become this intellectual. You're just going to become this person who, who uh, cares about how many angels sit on the head of a pin and you won't be good for anything. The Mennonite Brethren in Christ Church was greatly influenced by pietism. Puritanism. While pietism was strong in Germany, Puritanism was reigning uh, first in England and then as a result of persecution in the New England of America. Puritans did not merely want to transform the individual, but to purify the church and society as a whole. Pietism and Puritanism are almost mirror images of each other. As the Wikipedia article says, 
there's a confusion because both of them were concerned about transformation. Both were concerned about the heart. Both were concerned about being born again. But there was a real difference as to what effect that was to have upon the individual. The pietists were separatists. Have nothing to do with government. In fact, in many Anabaptist circles, you don't even vote for government. You want nothing to do with that evil thing out there. You want nothing to do with society. It's back to the influences of monasticism. Move yourself away from that as far as you can. The Puritans, they wanted to battle. They wanted to go to war. Okay, The Puritans wanted to take over society. They were going to change how people lived and conducted themselves. Okay? And, you know, I could pick hymns that would go with different points of view. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. That's a Puritan hymn. Okay? Take time to be holy. Speak off with thy Lord. Spend time in secret. Guess what hymn that is? That's a pietist hymn. That says if you really want to be righteous and holy, then you've got to take time, you've got to set apart, you've got to sit here, you've got to meditate, you've got to pray. You've got to go to war. You've got to take them on. You've got to change society. And there was a, a different view as, as uh, laws were concerned. That's where Wikipedia gets the idea of um, government. And so, you know, we had the blue laws of stores being closed on Sunday, and you had prohibition, and you had all these other things. Where does that come from? Well, it actually comes from a Puritan background. Because they did not merely want to transform the individual, but they wanted to purify the church and society as a whole. Um, I now have this statement from uh, G.I. Packer on his book, uh, Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life. He says, there are lessons for us in their passion for effective action. Though the Puritans, like the rest of the human race, had their dreams of what could and should be, they were decidedly not the kind of people that we would call dreamy. They had no time for the idleness of the lazy or passive person who leaves it to others to change the world. They were men of action in the pure Reformed mold, crusading activists, Without a jot of self-reliance, workers for God who depended utterly on God to work in and through them and who always gave God the praise for anything they did in retrospect seemed to them to have been right, gifted men who prayed earnestly that God would enable them to use their powers. And so he goes on and speaks of them in great praise. But my point here is their view of society, their view of society, they were battling the world. Now on page there was a strong emphasis on public education. There was a desire that every child could read so they could read the Bible. Okay, so schools were very important to Puritans. It's the emphasis of scholasticism. Clergy were to be highly trained. Okay, as opposed to the idea that that's going to kill you, and that's going to just sap every bit of 
spiritual energy you have, their view was the better trained, the more you understood, the more that you challenged the intellect, the more godly and holy and on fire and passion you were going to be. Harvard and Princeton were founded as a result of the Puritans. Harvest is the oldest institution of higher education in the United States, established in 1636 by the vote of the great and general court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was named after the college's first benefactor, the young minister John Harvard of Charlestown, who upon his death in 1638 left his library and half his estate to the institution. A statue of John Harvard stands today in front of University Hall in Harvard Yard and is perhaps the university's best known landmark. Jonathan Edwards was the third president of Princeton. Uh, I'm going to skip this next statement. Go to page six. The Bible Fellowship Church has been greatly influenced by Puritanism, Puritanism with large vestiges of pietism. Okay. In other words, there's been a change. There's been such a change, such a dramatic change, that we changed our name from Mennonite Brethren in Christ to the Bible Fellowship Church. And there are very practical ways in which you can see that change. Those of you uh, that are old enough to remember, I mean, dress has changed. We wear ties now. Back then you didn't. Okay, We had much more of a, a Mennonite look. Uh, Doctrinally, we changed. We went from Arminian to Calvinistic. Church government changed. We went to a board of elders as opposed to <clears throat> official board and bishops and so on. We, we, we changed in every way. One of the very practical ways is this whole aspect of education again. We went from having a gospel herald society, which... The way in which pastors were trained was by being mentored by other pastors. They had a reading course and, and uh, they would study, but the emphasis was on personal piety and mentorship. We went from Gospel Herald to Berean Bible School to Pinebrook Junior College to Bible College graduates to seminary training to pastors with earned doctorates. And now there are a number of pastors among us with earned doctorates. That is a huge shift. From a time in which it was forbidden to go to seminary. Not just discouraged. There was a time in our history when it was forbidden. You cannot go. Jansen Hartman had to get a special dispensation to go to seminary. Couldn't do it. Now it's encouraged. There's been a huge, huge shift. This can also be seen in the change from the standards of worship and life to the principles of biblical living. Some of you are old enough to remember the standards of worship and life. It's not that long ago. If you read over them, they read very, very differently than do the principles of, of uh, biblical living. Dancing, drinking, smoking, all of that. Biblical principles Far, far different. I'm not going to go into all that. I'm just pointing it out. Modern evangelicalism. Modern evangelicalism is a hodgepodge of fundamentalism, neo-evangelicalism, dispensationalism, covenantalism, pietism, puritanism, just to name a few. It's a whole bunch of stuff mixed together. 
And the result is many voices with competing views on doctrine and social issues that nobody seems to understand. And it's becoming incredibly pragmatic, okay? So that doctrine doesn't matter, social issues really don't matter. What matters is what works, okay? And it's about numerical growth, and building the church is simply getting people to sit in the pews. Doesn't matter if their lives are changing, et cetera, et cetera. And now for a more narrow consideration, what a holy life looks like. There's no clarity whatsoever. There's mass confusion with simplistic answers to the great problems of individual and corporate life, both inside and outside the church. Man, everything's being said. It's just a, it's just a mess. Okay. <clears throat> now, new movement. The missional church. Missional church. This is where the large church is today. This is the discussion. This is the theology. This is present day. Okay? All the major seminaries now are talking the missional church. Anybody who's up to date on theology, it's the missional church. Pietism Their view is flee the culture, separate from the culture. The view of the Puritans was fight the culture, take on the culture. The missional church, the view is engage the culture, interact with the culture, dialogue with the culture. And there is also a tremendous shift taking place in what it means to be holy or righteous. The missional church movement proclaims that it is concerned with a holistic gospel. A gospel that is concerned both with the transformation of the individual human heart and transforming society as a whole. I think that's a very accurate statement from the stuff that, that I've been reading. Now with that, though there is an emphasis, there is a clarion call for the believer to practice and promote social justice. The pendulum is swinging again. And the pendulum is swinging from the emphasis on personal righteousness, personal holiness. And what I mean by that is it's about you and your relationship with God. Lying, cheating, lusts. To be righteous is to get your personal life right. And if you get your personal life right, you are righteous. In social justice, to be righteous means that you are conducting yourself in a right behavior towards society. Okay? That you can't just ignore the people that are poor. You can't just ignore the people who don't have uh, clean water. You can't ignore the person that's oppressed. 
You can't turn your eye to the injustices that are happening to blacks. And all the issues that are, you know, with the the police and, and all of that, okay? The emphasis is on you must be concerned about society. You can't close your eyes to all of what is taking place. I got lost in my notes here. I have a page seven somewhere. I hope. Okay. So, a gospel is concerned with moral transformation of the human heart and a clarion call of the justice. So, I I, uh, provided this quote for you from What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom and the Great Commission by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Younger evangelicals are more concerned about the poor, about digging wells, about sex trafficking, about orphans, than at any other time in recent memory. Social justice is hot and is bound to stay that way for some time. One prominent scholar has gone so far as to claim that a renewed interest in social justice, or what he prefers to call a missional or holistic gospel, represents the biggest shift in evangelicalism in the last century. That's not an overstatement. That's not an overstatement. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. We need to be concerned that, this is now my statement, we need to be concerned the church is not merely reformed, but reforming. You know, the word reformed, we associate that with Calvinism, and the reason is because it was a change. It was, a, it was reforming the church. It was making the church into something that it wasn't, okay? The church shouldn't just be reformed. It ought to be reforming. It ought to constantly be changing unless we think we are perfect, unless we think that we have arrived, unless we think we're perfect. Just as in our individual lives, we ought to be growing, we ought to be developing, we ought to be changing, so too the church needs to be developing and growing and changing, So, what is our response to be? I said our response needs to be a mature response. I got that from the uh, Puritan quote that I didn't read for the sake of time. So first, we should not oppose the call to social justice as as an important aspect of what it means to be righteous. This pendulum swing shouldn't scare us. The Bible has tons to say about visiting the widow, the orphan. Pure religion and unfiled is this, says James, that you do those, those things. That's what pure religion is. Okay, <clears throat> wasn't emphasized in, in pietism. It wasn't emphasized. In fact, <clears throat> the reason that you did good in this aspect of personal righteousness was simply as a means of trying to evangelize. Okay, so the reason that you would be engaged in, say, a water project or the reason that you'd be engaged in trying to help an individual was perhaps it will give you an opportunity to share the gospel, and that's the real goal. The other was just a means to the end. It was a means to share the gospel. 
The difference is, in this understanding of social justice, is it's not a means to an end, it's a legitimate end in and of itself. We should be concerned about people who are oppressed. We should be concerned about people who don't have clean water, even if they don't come to faith. Even if they're not born again. We still should be concerned. We ought to be concerned about people who are being mistreated, taken advantage of. People that are, are being killed. Whether they're being killed for their faith or being killed for whatever reason. But we ought to be concerned about that. Okay? <clears throat> I say to you that that is a good thing. So we shouldn't oppose that. On the other hand, for all that there is being said about a concern for the whole gospel, the pendulum is swinging, and there is a lack of concern for personal righteousness, morality, and so on. So what does it mean to be a good Christian? One group would say, you know, you can live with somebody before you're married and be a very good Christian. If you're concerned about the poor, if you're concerned about their health, if you're concerned about all these things, for that's what a good Christian does. They are activists. They are out there and they're in the world. Okay. This person said, no, 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 no. You can't be a good Christian and be living with someone before you're married. This person would say, well, you're not living with anybody, but what are you doing to alleviate all these social ills? Well, that's got nothing to do with me. I can be a good Christian without being concerned about the poor. I can be a good Christian without... And the point is, all of it's in the Bible. All of it's there. You don't get to pick and choose. And our church, now I'm not talking about our local church, but but Christendom today is really struggling with picking and choosing. And I think what we need to do is incorporate both ideas for both are true. And not just careen off course by emphasizing one without the other but that we understand that both are necessary. I'm, I'm over, but let me give you one last example here, and I'm going to quit. How this affects doctrinally, okay? Because even doctrinally, if you think about the kingdom, we sing a lot of songs about the kingdom. I talk a lot about the kingdom, okay? In pietism, the emphasis on the kingdom was premillennial, Meaning that when Christ comes, he's going to establish his kingdom. And until then, we can't do anything because this is just a corrupt world and we've got to wait for Christ to return and make a difference. Amillennialism taught there's not a future kingdom, the kingdom's now. And you need to be working and bringing the kingdom in. And you need to be changing society. And that was amillennialism. Okay. Now there's a huge shift. And that is amillennialism 
and premillennialism are coming together. And now people are talking about the kingdom in terms of the already and not yet. There are aspects that the kingdom are here now, and there are aspects in which the kingdom are future. There are things that we can do now, and there are things that only Christ can do when he comes. I think that's the healthy approach. The Biofellowship Church just adopted a new statement on the kingdom. And it's a statement about the already and the not yet. How, yes, we believe in a future literal reign of Christ, but yet there's a sense in which that kingdom is here now. And we have to be responsible. We have to be taking on our society. We have to be engaging our society, not just fighting and warring with it, but trying to win our society and our culture over. Okay? And that's got tons of baggage with it that I'm desperately interested in trying to talk to you about because I think these are exciting times and uh, I just hope that we can find a straight way through this and not just careen off track into one area or the other. Uh, But may we have a mature response, not just oppose, but accept, but not to accept without looking at it critically. Okay, and the other reason I'm doing this is because there is also a great um, generational divide. Okay, the younger people are on board big time with the social justice issues, and rightly so. And the older generation is very, very concerned about personal righteousness and holiness in terms of moral integrity and those issues, and rightly so. We've got to bring those two things together. Uh, We've got to learn from each other. We, We have to not choose between these two, but incorporate these ideas in a very healthy way because that's what the Scripture says Um, And I used here at the end this statement, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul writes. Uh, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, everything of what the Bible has to say. And I'm applying this to righteousness and holiness. Not just looking at one little aspect of it, but looking at all of what the Bible says about righteousness and holiness and not going off into just one little area, but striving hard to steer the car down the middle of the road. Let's pray. Our Father, help us, uh, for uh, we really do want to be what you want us to be. You said be holy, for you are holy. Help us to understand even what that looks like. Uh, Help us to be willing to sit and really look at the scriptures and pour over them, and see what they say about our own personal righteousness, our morality, our standards, and the concern that we need for all of the pain and suffering and heartache and misery around us and what you have called us to be in alleviating these these ills in our society. Uh, Lord, 
Help us. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.